Hi, I'm Brian from Dallas. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Thanks. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Scott McCloud. Uh, he's a comics artist whose books include understanding comics, uh, creating comics, reinventing comics, and most recently a compilation of the uh, superhero metacomic, you might say, to some extent, that he published during the 1980s, Zot. His previous books on the subject of comics have become canonical, particularly the first, Understanding Comics, which is universally regarded as the best guide to reading comics as a medium. Scott, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thanks, Jesse. It's great to have you on the show. I've enjoyed uh, many of your books. I want to start by talking about your role as uh, an interpreter and explainer of comics, because obviously, you know, this is a a general interest operation we're running here, and um, I'm sure many of the folks out there in public radio land aren't big readers of comics, which tends to be a very subculturally specific activity. Although it is growing. Certainly so, yes. Um, What are the bedrock principles of understanding comics as a medium? Well, it's a lot like uh, other media is that the first thing you have to do is kind of clear your head of all the stuff that's been done with it if you want to understand what can be done with it because they're not the same thing. It's the same thing with movies, with, with books, with with theater. You have this basic idea. In, in the case of comics, it's this idea of putting one picture after another to tell a story. And that's wide open. You can do anything with that. And a lot of progress in this medium, like other media, have come from people understanding that and understanding that they don't have to be restricted by its history, restricted by its culture or its industry. They can be informed by that stuff. They can learn from that stuff. They can learn from people that came before them. But if there's something that's never been done in comics, it doesn't mean that you can't do it. It's actually a very good reason to do it. And that's that's sort of what's been happening lately. A big part of uh, the beginning of understanding comics is about trying to define comics. What is your current understanding of uh, <laughs> what specifically comics are? How, how do you define them? When understanding comics, I I uh, describe them as basically sequential art. Again, you know, I put you put one picture after another, and you're saying, okay, this is it's like a temporal map. As you move through space, you're moving through time, and and people understand that. And it's, it's a very, very simple idea, but it has a tremendous variety of applications. Now, I had to nail it down a little more because, I mean, animation is a kind of sequential art. Uh, magazine ads you could think of as a kind of sequential art. Even film is a, is exactly. a series of still photographs. Exactly. So, um, so I came up with a longer definition, which is juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence. But I'm not really suggesting, <laughs> like you know, <laughs> like ten year olds sitting in the drugstore should sit around talking about you know how they're they got their the latest issue of juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence. You know, but but that helped to sort of narrow it down. But then once I did that, once I unpacked that, I could pack it back up and never mention that again ever, because <laughs> who who really cares? Except now on the radio, what fifteen years later? <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. So, but. 
But the important thing was that it wasn't so much about trying to like put a a box around everything. You know, sometimes people look at this business of defining things as as like, oh, you want to control it, you want to pin it down, you want to restrict it. It wasn't that so much because the way I looked at it, we already had this little box around comics, and it was this box of our own expectations. So it's this this little tiny colony of all the things that had been done with comics and all these. And when we thought of comics, we thought, oh, well, you know, there's superheroes, there's funny animals, there used to be romance comics, whatever. You know, that's and that was sort of as big as as that that nation of comics was. And when when I did the definition, it wasn't so much to say, oh, you know what, maybe we should say that uh, the family circus or the far side. Well, that's kind of different. That that doesn't count as comics in my definition. I wasn't interested in what I might slice off. What I was interested in was drawing this big, gigantic box and say, oh, look, everything we've ever done, it's just this tiny little cluster in this gigantic box of possibilities. That was the point. Let's talk a little bit about those possibilities. When you're talking about this sequential art arranged in space, which is essentially what comics are, what are the strengths of that as a medium relative to, you know, the printed word or film, which are sort of the two two other closest forms, probably? Well, it's interesting comparing it to those two in particular because because comics sits between them in an interesting way. In film, it's what you might call a lean back medium. The 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 audience gets to just lean back and let it come kind of wash over them, and it can be challenging intellectually. It can be challenging aesthetically. But essentially, you are counting on the makers of that work to give you everything. And what you bring back to it is just your understanding and your reactions. But they're going to tell that story, you know, photon by photon and, and, and sound wave by sound wave. They're giving you everything. In prose, it's just the reverse. You're get, being given very little in terms of the actual channel that that information is coming down. In comics, it's a little of both. But what happens is you have this great rhythm where the artist and writer, they're giving you something to see and experience within the panel, and then they expect you to come back again and again in this call-and-response rhythm by imagining what's between the panels and bringing your understanding to stitching these moments together. So it's a really nice blending of those two. One of the interesting things that you bring up in in understanding comics about the aesthetics of comics that I, I don't think I had thought about before was the ways in which uh, aesthetic abstraction um, and the levels of aesthetic abstraction help us understand the content of a comic. Tell me a little bit about why things are abstracted in comics besides the fact that it's a, a lot of work to do photorealistic drawings, um, relatively <laughs> speaking. <Yeah. laughs> um, what, the, what effect that has? Well, when we hear the word ab- abstraction, what we imagine is something that's abstracted from what the eye sees. So, in other words, resemblance kind of decays until you, you wind up with just lines and colors and shapes. So when we talk about abstract art, for instance, you might be talking about something like, uh, you know, Jackson Pollock or, um, or Mondrian or something. But what's interesting is you can abstract from the real world in a couple of different ways. Because you can abstract away from resemblance and away from any kind of meaning until it's just colors and shapes. But you can also abstract away from what the eye sees and still retain what the mind understands. And that's what happens with cartooning is the more cartoony an image gets, like the image of a face can be reduced all the way down to a circle, a couple of dots, and a line. What you're looking at there, it doesn't look like any face that ever existed. That thing is completely crazy. It's it's completely abstracted from a real face. And yet we understand it to be a face just as clearly, if not more clearly, 
than we do like a photograph of a face. So what's happening there is it's what I what I call iconic abstraction is you're abstracting only from resemblance but not from not from meaning. And you follow that line all the way and you kind of gro- you cross the river into words because that's what words are, right? There's something that no longer looks anything like what they describe and yet we still understand it just as well. So that's like one axis. So you're like if you imagine a photograph at the lower left-hand corner going all the way out to cartooning and words on the lower right-hand corner, that's one line of abstraction. But you can also go in that other line, which goes up to the picture plane, to real abstraction, to things like you know, abstract art. And think of that as sort of the top of this little pyramid. Within that big triangle, that's virtually every form of visual communication is right within that triangle. You draw yourself in understanding comics and the series very simply and abstractly. Why did you make that choice? Well, I, th- I thought that it was really useful because then the, the reader is bringing a lot of themselves into the character. This is one of the things I found with cartoon characters. And you can see with things like The Simpsons is you kind of invest a lot of identity into those characters. You don't look at them as the other so much, the way that you do like a highly rendered character. You're going to be looking at that character the way you would look at somebody else. You have this sense of separation. With a really simple form, simple cartoon forms, uh, you tend to kind of step into that character and so I become just a, a voice inside your head conveying this information when I'm in that very simple form. If I draw myself in a really photographic way, I think a lot of people would have been distracted, not so much listen to the ideas as been distracted by this person, like sort of wondering who is this person that's telling me this thing. Let's give people a, sort of a primer on the ways that the space between panels tell a story in a comic. That's something that doesn't exist in film or in books in the same way. How does that that part of the story that's not represented, uh, how is that used in comics? Well, you know, it's funny because film and prose, as different as they are, do have something in common that comics doesn't, which is they're seamless. They're monotextural. You know what I mean? It's And so... Yeah, in comics, we have that gap between the panels, and we have to do so much work to fill it in. One of the things that that does is, we, even though comics is just a visual medium, it's just a static visual medium, it doesn't make sound, doesn't, there's no smells or sounds or, or taste or touch, uh, we find that in between those panels, we have to bring all of our five senses to bear. Because in our imagination, it's not just visual. So there are a lot of different ways that you can put images together in such a way that we imagine the whole sensory world. Um, it's also really cool when you take those images and they're not, they're not stitched together quite so closely. The more you pull them apart, the more work it takes to take a couple of images and stitch them together and come up with a kind of understanding or deduction in order to make them happen, um, in order to fill in those blanks. That can, that can be a really interesting, engaging process for the reader. You don't necessarily want to spell everything out. Sometimes it's really nice to have these almost mysterious combinations. And, you know, we look for patterns our species, we have to find these connections. We always assume meaning. Meaning is kind of the the default assumption. So even if you have a couple of pictures that like have almost nothing to do with each other, even if you just grab them at random out of a magazine, and they really do have nothing to do with each other, your audience is going to try to find that meaning. They're going to assume meaning. What about the parts of a comic uh, that aren't actually representational the the visual parts things like stink lines yeah (laughs) for example what's the role that they play well those are really cool because they're halfway between a picture and a symbol right you know the uh the stink lines are one the one i always use is is like the sweat beads you can draw a face that's sweating you have a little cartoon symbol of sweat 
like running down somebody's cheek. Well, okay, that's a picture of a sweat bead. But how about these things that are like flying off their heads? Is that still a picture? Exactly. It's, we're not so much saying that those things are, are literally flying off the head. What we're saying is this thing that used to be a picture is becoming a symbol. It's becoming a word. And what's really cool about that is that's exactly how we got words in the first place. Uh, a lot of early writing began as these little pictograms, but as people keep kept doing them uh, year to year, century to century, they became more abstract. They became just a few strokes until you couldn't really tell anymore. If you look at um, Asian languages, especially Chinese, Japanese, Korean, you can still see these little hints of what used to be pictures. And it's cool seeing them evolve. And it's, and it's cool, too, seeing them evolve in different cultures. If you go to Japan, they have different stuff. They have different symbols. Instead of the, the sweat beads and the, and the stink lines, uh, they have things like if somebody's like sexually aroused, blood will shoot out of their nose, nose, right? <laughs> or, or like you know, mucus bubbles come out of their nose when they're asleep. And it's like, oh, that's just a symbol for them. But for us, it's like, what, what the hell is that? <laughs> well, it's happened to the best of us. Scott. Yeah, right. I know. Well, once in a while, yeah. I had to clean a lot of snot off yeah. my pillow. Um, is what I'm trying to say. It's the sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. My guest Scott McCloud is the author of many books about comics and several books of comics, his most recent of which is a compilation of his 1980s comic, Zot. We'll have more with Scott McCloud in just a minute. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. The Sound of Young America is live in San Francisco on Friday, January 23rd with comedy from Casper Hauser and the great Sean Cullen and interviews with punk rock legend Jello Biafra and San Francisco political scion and sometimes stand-up comic Assemblyman Tom Amiano. Find more information and tickets on our live page at MaximumFun.org. That's MaximumFun.org and click on Live. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Scott McCloud, is a comics artist and commentator and interpreter. His most recent publication is a collection of his Zot series from the late 1980s. It seems like one of the big dichotomies that emerged in the uh, 80s in comic books was between serious and not serious yeah um yeah. which i think revealed itself in you know c comic books that were about the old subjects like superheroes that were created with the heavy weight of seriousness and folks who yeah. you know went to see uh, the dark knight in movie theaters can see the sort of filmic ramifications of that movement in comic books in the 1980s. It's something yeah. that's given a, just a lot of seriousness. Everything is really <laughs> serious and for grown-ups. Um, when you were looking at that sort of movement, and it's corollary in terms of things that were to be directly interpreted as art, like Art Spiegelman's Mouse or something like that, yeah. what did you see as a, you know, 22-year-old working for DC Comics. How did you feel about that? You know, it was all progress. I mean, I wanted to see comics go in a million different directions at once. So when I was sitting in the train platform, when I was working for DC, I was living upstate a little. I would, I would take the train platform, or Metro North, and I remember reading Watchmen on the train. That thing was amazing. And that was around the same time. That was just an amazing book, Watchmen. 
and it, it, like Dark Knight, really explored the dark side of superheroes. And I was like, wow, that's great. But now I notice that everybody else is imitating it. You know, everybody else is doing their own dark and gritty book. And You'd be like, surprised how many superheroes can swear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I was like, screw that. I don't, I don't want to just like get in the parade. What, what Moore and Miller were saying basically was, hey, you know what? These guys don't all have to be squeaky clean. Don't all do the same thing. We're going to show you how to do something completely different. Check this out. And everybody was like, yeah, we want to do something completely different too. We're going to do exactly what you're doing. It's like that scene from Life of Brian, you know, where he's like, you're all individuals. And everybody's like, we are all individuals. And the one guy in the background is going, I'm not. So I'm basically the guy in the background saying, I'm not. <laughs> so, so I went in a completely opposite direction. And I, and I thought, okay, well, let's try the really sunny, kind of optimistic, you know, innocent thing. Except then, of course, you know, at, at its heart, it was something a little more subversive. What, what were you interested in uh, that was outside of that um, specifically United states comics world at, at that time? Everything. In fact, I was much more influenced by Japanese comics by European comics and by the American avant-garde than I was by superhero comics. I was doing a superhero comic, and about the only kind of comic I wasn't reading was superhero comics. I kind of hated superhero comics as I was doing it. It was really weird, but I was trying to incorporate all the stuff. I, I mean, I, even the earliest issues of Zod, I was incorporating I got, ideas I got from things like Raw, you know, Art, the, the, the anthology that Art Spiegelman and Francois Mouly edited with all kinds of crazy avant-garde comics in it. So, um, but it was a little schizo. I mean, in the end, I think, you know, I was, I was a little schizo that way. I was, I had this love-hate relationship with the genre I was working in. And in fact, when we put together all those zots, all those old, you know, there was, this was the first comic I ever did, this superhero comic. When we put them together in that recent collection uh, for Harper, I was in many ways trying to, you know, come to terms with this first series and with my relationship with the genre. One of the things that I thought was interesting that you wrote about in the uh, little introduction to this collection of Zot was that you really started reading comic books when you were 15. And comic books are often something that people start reading when they're little kids. Yeah. Um, and then they give and, up at 15 and when they, they discover girls. Yeah, exactly. Or or in, some, in the case of many comics creators, they stick with it past 15, but... Uh, their understanding of the world is in relation to their relationship with comic books when they were ten. Yeah, you know, I mean, you, you could even you could see you know those gritty Batman comics as a sort of commentary on people's relationship with Batman when they were ten. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you think the fact that you, that you were uh, that you were already you know basically uh, an adult, uh, a young adult, when you started comics, affected uh, what you were doing. Kind of changed everything. I mean, because the fact that I didn't read comics as a kid, I, I never had that nostalgia. I have no interest in nostalgia. I'm actually kind of hostile to nostalgia. <laughs> I don't, you know, the whole nostalgia, people looked at my work as, as nostalgic. It was like, no, no, screw nostalgia. I hate nostalgia. Um, I was interested in the future. I was interested in what comics could do. And a lot of that came from yeah the fact that I didn't read them as a little kid. And I really looked down when I, when I was 12, 11 years old, I didn't want anything to do with comics. I was reading science fiction and fantasy prose. And as far as art was concerned, I was into surrealism and and Dadaism, you know, and things like that. And and I just didn't like comics. I thought comics were just junk. And a friend of mine named Kurt Busick, who's also making comics now, 
he was in junior high school with me. And it he, sounds like, I don't mean to interrupt, but it sounds like you weren't just a nerd, you were a snobby nerd. I was a snob. I was a total <laughs> snob, a complete snob. And, and I, you know, I did not want to be on the bottom of the nerd food chain, I guess, or the, the totem pole. But, but Kerr was into comics, and he was my fellow nerd, and he got me reading the things. He had to try really hard to get me to read comics. And then, you know, within a year, I want to make them for a living. And I, but it, but it still, it had to do more with, hey, these things could be great. You know, I'd seen just a few people like Steranko or Neil Adams, these, these more adventurous artists. They were doing stuff that said to me, oh, I get it. Comics doesn't always have to be on newsprint with the staples, with the guys in tights. It can be something else. And that's that's something else is what I've been chasing now for the last twenty five years. You got a job at DC Comics in the in the production uh, department right out of college. Yeah. Um, what led you to create your own comic when you had this sort of stable, good gig for for a guy your age? Now I love working in production. It was a fun place. We just sat around, listened to music, and I would like correct you know word balloons and do corrections, things like this. White out the little places where the lines went over the border, and I got. I had this idea before that. When I was in college, I thought, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to write and draw my own comic. I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to create a little empire, you know, whatever. And then I got to D.C. and, and everybody was like, oh, that's not how it works. What you, what you do is for three years you work in production and then maybe you'll get a job assisting a letterer. And then maybe you get to letter your own work. And then another five years, maybe you get to ink backgrounds. And then another five years, maybe you can ink. And then eventually maybe you can pencil. And I was like, oh, well, hmm, that doesn't sound very exciting, but if that's the way it's done. And then was what happened was my father died. And I had one of those kind of life-changing moments where suddenly I realized that I didn't want to wait. And I started working on a proposal for my own comic. And a little while later, I had it. It was about 100 pages of material. I just like worked like crazy. And uh, I sent it out to some publishers, got the job, never looked back. Was the story of Zot the story that had burning, been burning inside your soul since uh, you discovered the medium? Or was it what happened to be around when you decided to do something with yourself? I'll pick B. <laughs> it was. It was really. It was the thing on the top of the pile. It really was. It was comics for me was the point, not the character. So it was the thing at that point where at the point where I decided this is... I have to make comics now. That was the point at which I was staring at this one particular idea. I liked that one the best, the ideas I had at the time. But it, it could have almost been anything. It just That's what came down the gumball shoot. It seems like you were very self-conscious about all these different choices you had to make in creating a comic. Yeah. What were the choices that you knew you were making right from when you you know wrote that proposal? Well, you know, one was that it was in color. Which was a really big deal. I thought I was really, I was pissed off that a lot of comics artists were doing color or black and white comics, and it seemed like it. The only factor was cost. Like, oh, do I have enough money for color? Oh, wow, I hope I'll have money for color someday, so I'll do it in black and white. It's like, no, color and black and white are different. If you if you're making a color comic, you create it for color. You actually design the thing for color. So I was looking at people like Hergé, you know, and and uh, you know, and Kirby and people like that. But if you're designing for black and white, then you design for black and white now. And for my when I when it came back as black and white, I was looking at a lot of manga. I was looking at people like Tezuka who were doing this really fantastic stuff in black. So that was one of the decisions. And then the other decision was, okay, I'm working within a genre. I'm working within certain expectations. Let's see if I can play with those and subvert those. And because of that, 
because everything was a decision, because I couldn't really rely on my instinct. I'm not as an intuitive artist as some people. Stuff could look a little stiff. And that's still one of the things that I'm I'm dealing with. I'm one of those artists. I'm one of the artists who has to map everything out. It's, it's always calculating. And that can, that can, you know, that can drain some of the life out of you. You have to have find ways out of that. The work inside is really aesthetically um, bold, though, if you don't mind my saying, especially considering the context of, you know, 1988 or whatever year it was when you were creating it, 1987. There are, you mentioned the influence of manga, which is uh, Japanese comics, which today are... Um, you know, one of the best performing parts of the whole book industry. Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> I know it's so weird. Th- thanks, and and sort of secretly, I, I didn't realize this until I worked in a, a a bookstore when I was in college. But you know, this is something that's going on sort of under the radar and largely to uh, teenage girls. Yep. Um, which is you know an audience that the comic book industry had <laughs> written off pretty squarely <laughs> uh, in 1988. But there, there are these aesthetic cues that you're picking up from manga that are really like really wild. I mean, talk about stink lines. <laughs> um, tell me about what what were the what were the things that you were doing graphically in this black and white format. Well, there were like ten different techniques that I was picking up from manga. But what was interesting is later on I realized they all contributed to the same thing, which is all of these techniques had a way of making you feel like you were part of the story. So, for instance. We had a different way of doing motion. In the States, we would have, let's say, Superman's like flying over a building. Okay, we have a drawing. Here's a building. Here's Superman, right? We'd just draw them both very literally. Then we'd have these lines behind Superman saying, you see, this is, we're showing you which way he went. <laughs> these, these little trails behind him, these, these little lines. And that was, uh, yeah, you know, in the hands of a good artist, that could be kind of exciting. Kirby would make that look good. But in Japan, what they would do is they'd say, well, do we want to watch Superman fly? Or do we want to fly alongside Superman? I thought, let's do, let's fly alongside Superman. Let's feel like we're flying because that's more interesting than just watching some guy fly, right? So what they would do is they would draw the character who's flying or the character on the motorcycle or the character on the horse. They would just draw them straight. And then the entire world would be this blurred streak behind them because what they're saying is you're, you're the guy on the horse. You're the guy on the motorcycle. You're the guy in the car. You're the guy who's flying. The entire world is rushing by you at 150 miles per hour. And that's really cool. But that makes you feel like you're participating. So whether it was that or it was all of these emotional expressionistic effects or it was these silent uh, sequences where you just see pieces of a scene or whatever, all of these techniques, they they, they contributed to the exact same sensation, which is I'm not watching a story. I'm in the story. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Japanese comics were outselling American comics by like 40 to 1 at that point. Let's let's talk for a second about who we're identifying with, though, here, because something that surprised me when I started reading the book was that the story is told not from the perspective of the superhero, um, but from the perspective of the superhero's sort of awkward teenage <laughs> yeah. pseudo-girlfriend. Yeah. Which is a very, very specific choice. It's a lot different from people identifying with Peter Parker, who was nerdy, but then he became super strong, or basically any other superhero who was nerdy and then became super yeah. strong. <laughs> um, why, why did you make that choice? I like the idea of grounding the thing. You know, I I was interested in the mechanics of escapism, and I thought one of the most important things for escapism it has to be 
tethered to the ground. It can't just float away into this fantasy sphere. You have to you have to have it tied to something real and familiar in order for it to work. Um, and and so tying it to the experiences of somebody who is more easily identified with that made more sense to me. Also, Zot was primarily about this idea of two worlds. You know, there was Zot's world was this utopian world. Uh, where everything kind of went right, where where it was like our world, except all the bad stuff was taken out. So we have this uh, utopian world being contrasted with our world, the world we're in. So in, in a lot of ways, the whole series is just a critique of the earth that we were born into. And this idea that we don't we didn't get a choice. We were born into this one, you know, this world of broken dreams or whatever. So I, I was able to contrast the two worlds by contrasting the two characters, but it made more sense for us to see the story through the eyes of the person who lived on the world that we do. Um, uh, let's talk about broken dreams for a second. Um, <laughs> I, I was just... Are we, are we moving on to webcomics? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, very, very much. So um, I, I was just, as I was preparing for this, uh, reading an interview you did in uh, with our buddies at the Onion AV Club in, uh, I think it was 2000. I think it was Tasha Robinson you mm. talked to. And... Um, uh, you were very. Ex- you basically laid out what you thought the future of web media was, which was that uh, as of 2000, there were two ways to make money. One was to give something away for free and sell the eyeballs. Uh, the other was to sell something that was physical. Yeah. Um, Adams and eyeballs. Exactly. And um, what you were hoping for and what a lot of reinventing comics was about was a way for money to come from something incorporal. Um, And uh, your your idea of how that would probably happen was micropayments, small, um, you know, 25 cents at a time. Uh, you compared it to uh, putting quarters in a jukebox to pay yeah. for things. Yeah, essentially. Um, or, or even, you know, a dollar or two at a time. Um, this is now almost 10 years since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can buy a song on iTunes for 99 cents, but they'd rather you didn't. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of sucky. I mean, so people sometimes say, hey, we've got iTunes now. Isn't that what you wanted? And it's like, uh, eh. well, I use iTunes. Yeah, I like giving money for music. I wish it was going all to the artist. Uh, and I wish it was 50 cents or 25 cents. It should be 25 cents. But um, but you wouldn't we... But, but I yeah, think but that basically the structural issues with iTunes are, remain the same ones, which is that, you know, I'm sure when iTunes processes a, a, a 99-cent sale, they have to give, you know, 35 cents to the credit card company think, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think their cut's a little better. I, it's not It's not quite as inefficient as that. But the reason that I like the idea of a micropayments prov- provider, the reason I liked an idea of a web currency, basically, was I like the idea of... Like flus. Yeah, well, yeah, there were a lot of attempts. Well, basically, <laughs> well, there were a lot of crappy attempts. And, right. and you know, when, when these guys called BitPass in like 2003 came along, I thought, ah, oh, this one might work. And I, I hit, hitched up with them and we failed, basically. Um, but, uh, but I thought... And I still think to a lot to a degree is if there's going to be any kind of commerce for bits rather than atoms and eyeballs, because right now it is still mostly atoms and eyeballs, then first of all, the price ought to be low because you're cutting out this army of middlemen. You, consumers shouldn't be paying a lot of money for this stuff. And, and also, they, you know, they always have the option going elsewhere. So that's number one. Price ought to be low and it ought to be incredibly easy. But most of all, it shouldn't be one big fat vendor. I didn't want anyone 
to have the bottleneck. That's the problem with the iTunes model. It's just like, hey, this is great. Now all music will be under the thumb of one entity. It's like, no, that's not, this is not the, this doesn't make me happy. So the world as we have it right now, it's still atoms and bits. I mean, excuse me, it's still atoms and eyeballs for the most part. And then what, the, the, the money that's trading hands for, for bits, eh, still price is kind of high. And, um, and there are very few players. So, yeah, I failed. But, <laughs> um, but I don't know. It's still young. Do you still do you still feel optimistic for the chances of comics divorced from paper? Well, sure, yeah. I think the there are usability issues, and this is the other the flip side of it too. Is there were two things I wanted. One of them was I wanted to see this this commerce of of bids, and the other one was I wanted to see these new design models for comics on the web. Right now, it's mostly comic strips. Those seem to work particularly well for the web as it is right now. Um, but I was interested too in the long form stuff. What can you do with like the equivalent of a graphic novel online? You know, is there any reason to still have pages? Could you lay the whole thing out on this big, you know, expanding map that you would navigate through? And that 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 stuff is still very interesting to me. But that's also at a standstill. So basically, you know, I I I think I more or less fell on my face as far as the early phase of this. I wasn't able to bring about either of those revolutions. But you know, 1993 is when things really got rolling. That was when the first graphical web browsers came out. That was 15 years ago. I my daughter is older than the web, as we know it anyway. And uh, and so I'm I'm still pretty optimistic. The, the whole thing's still so new. Do you still feel like a revolutionary? No, I feel, no, I, hmm. Well, I feel like an outlier. That is, a lot of the things that I want are still actually kind of radical. And and so I guess in that respect I am. But I've always been I've always been fairly quiet. I wound up in various flame wars, but I wasn't usually the one with the match. <laughs> uh, I was just the one getting burned. <laughs> so so I don't have that revolutionary personality. But actually, there's some pretty freaking weird things that I still want to see happen, and I think probably will, especially on the aesthetic side of things. So maybe in the long run I'll be able to claim that title. But right now. I'm just, you know, goofy Uncle Scott over there with his wacky ideas. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. My pleasure, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Scott McLeod's many wonderful books include uh, the recently compiled Zot 1987 to 1991, the complete black and white collection. He's online at scottmcleod.com. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show edited by Nick White. Our intern is Brian Fernandez. You can always email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. And I recommend that you visit MaximumFun.org or iTunes and check out the Sound of Young America classics. If you're not already deep into the Sound of Young America vaults, it's an easy way to get a new old Sound of Young America every week. Bay Area folks, I hope I'll see you at the Sound of Young America Live in the Monsters of Podcasting in San Francisco. Everybody else, maybe we'll come see you sometime too. One way or the other, we'll see you next week on the Sound of Young America.